We are really excited to be here. Some of you guys, it's your first Sunday, and you're going, uh, what's, what in the world's going on? And, uh, and it's our first Sunday, too, so if that's you, man, we'd love to link arms with you and just get to know you as newbies together in this and uh, build on what's been built uh, by way of Jesus and those of you guys who have helped to establish a foundation here uh, in terms of Cross Point Peachtree City. Um, my wife and I, our family, we've been a part of Cross Point Church for the last five years. So we, we've been in, down in Orlando and we, we've been a part of the family. This is an internal move for us. And I won't go into all of the particulars this morning. Um, I will say, if you're curious about how the story has unfolded, I can give you a link. Um, to a, a website that I can send you to where I've posted that story to share with people and, and can kind of fill you in a little bit more from my vantage point, from my perspective. But for the sake of this morning so that we can open the Bible together, let me just say this. The providence of God absolutely astounds me. Um, if you had told me a year ago that uh, my family and I would be joining you guys in this work of planting the gospel in Peachtree City, I would have told you that you were out of your mind. You were out of your ever-loving mind, actually. Um, we, were, we were very much engaged in the city of Orlando. Jesus was saving people. We were baptizing people. In fact, uh, just last Sunday night, we actually had two kiddie pool twilight baptisms, and it was really cool to, to see that all unfold. We were getting ready to multiply community groups this spring in Orlando, and, and everything was very much full steam ahead. But um, God in his providence had other plans. Um, for those of you who don't know, my wife and I spent our first two years of our marriage here in, in Peachtree City. I lived here for a year prior to that, but from 2008 to 2010, my wife and I had our first date nights as a married couple in Peachtree City. Uh, we love this place. We have loved this place for quite some time. Um, we experienced those challenging years of marriage together, and yet some of the sweetest years of our marriage as well were spent in this very zip code. In 2010, we moved to Orlando where I enrolled in a master's program uh, down there in biblical studies, began a church planting apprenticeship with our Winter Park congregation down in Orlando. And in 2012, we were faced with the question of, so where are we going to plant a church? And, and that's always a big one for church planters. In fact, when you go through the assessment process, that's one of the ones that, that they put at, at the top of the list. That's the big E on the I chart. Where are you going to go? Where is your heart inclined to, to move and uh, plant the gospel? And Peachtree City was, was one of those possible landing spots for us until we found out that Josiah Potter and his family had beat us to the punch. And, and so we didn't disengage from Peachtree City at a heart level, but more so at a logistical level because we acknowledged that for the sake of the gospel, it would probably be better to divide and conquer. And so we did that. We stayed in the northeast corridor of Orlando and we planted, and as I said, uh, Jesus has done some really sweet things down there. And so um, give you a couple of stories. One of the coolest conversion stories that uh, we've had down there in our short existence as a young church plant, uh, we actually had a guy from New York City come down. He was down visiting his sons for about a month, and he got a temporary membership to the YMCA where our church was meeting for our Sunday gatherings. And I was uh, on, on a chaplaincy rotation with that YMCA at that point as well. And so through all of those connecting points, this guy showed up at our service, uh, had no idea who he was, heard the gospel, became a follower of Jesus, and went straight back to New York City where we connected him with a pastor in a church up there so that he's now engaged in a church up in uh, New York City, which is really sweet, really cool. Um, 
In terms of baptisms, our first baptism gathering, as you saw, it it just happens in a a litany of ways when you're in the realm of church planting. And so for us, our first uh, gathering for baptisms was in an indoor lap pool at the YMCA where our church met. And, And the funny thing, the crazy thing about it was they didn't shut down the entire pool. They gave us a lane. And so as we're baptizing people, there's actually a guy in his swim cap just going back and forth, no no wherewithal about what's going on around him at all. At one point, he actually got to the end of of a lap, looked up, pulled up his goggles, looked around, saw us baptizing people, and then had the audacity to pull his goggles back down and just go for another lap, which which was pretty amazing. And it was even funnier because he wasn't even that fast. He was a really slow swimmer, and, and, and yet I think he thought that he was uh, really something else when it came to uh, swimming in a lap pool. And so um, we had one of those moments. People were gathering around as they were preparing for swim lessons for their children. They just kind of sat up against the wall and watched Jesus being made much of. And so I, I, love, I love church planting. Um, I'm excited to be with you guys and be a part of, again, a young church plant here in Peachtree City. I share those stories with you because um, I'm convinced that God is at work in Crosspoint Church um, as a multi-congregational church. If you were here early enough to see the bumper video, those were all of of the Crosspoint congregations um, across states uh, represented by way of that video. And so we want you to see what Jesus is up to. Um, This church is a beautiful mess, and and yet so is every other congregation that makes up Crosspoint Church. And as we'll see this morning, every church that exists in the world um, is is quite a beautiful mess. The reason we moved here is not because we were discontent with where we were, but because we believe that Jesus can use us even more to make much of him in Peachtree City. And so uh, that's why we're here. We're very confident that God's going to do great things here through this church in the months and, and in the years to come. As Michael said, and I do hope we have another 50 to come as a church. We're in it with you guys, me, my wife, our daughter, our baby to come, who will find out the gender uh, in about four weeks. We're so in it that we're not going to rent. We're just going to buy a house. So we just want to set up roots and just live here and just live life with you guys and make much of Jesus for however long uh, God will allow us to do that. And I hope that if you haven't already made that commitment, that you'll link arms with us and commit to be in it with us as well. Even those of you who are coming for the first time and going, I don't even know what's going on here. Um, want you to be a part of this with us. So um, with that being said, I do want to open up the Bible this morning. I love Jesus. I love his church. I love the Bible. I um, want to make much of him this morning. And so again, if you have questions, shoot me an email. I'll get you a link to the story of how all of this unfolded. Uh, friend me on Facebook if you want to. We can go grab coffee. I love coffee, and ex- any excuse to drink it is fine by me. Um, but for now, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll be in verses 1 through 9 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, are there Bibles underneath the seats nearby? Um, If there are, you can grab one of those and open up to page 618 in that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible with you as the churches give to you. Uh, We want you to explore the truth claims of Christianity for yourself. We want you to be the owner of a Bible. I promise we're not going to come knock on your door and demand your soul as payment for the book that we took from you. My last name is Vizzini, but I'm not connected directly to the mafia, and so just take it. It's yours. We, we love that people own Bibles. So um, this morning, before we jump in and read the passage, um, we do begin a new sermon series. It's entitled, A Beautiful Mess. And, and for those of us who are honest with ourselves, with others, with God, that's a perfect description of who we are, is it not? 
We, we try our hand at reputation management, and we're really good at that in the Bible Belt in the hopes that no one will clue in on the fact that we're actually train wrecks when it comes down to it. That at the end of the day, um, everyone in this room who's not kidding themselves is undeniably a beautiful mess. If you look around this room, as, as James had you do earlier, you're surrounded by one beautiful mess after another, after another, after another, because the church, by definition, is a group of people who realize that they do not have it all together, right? The church, by definition, is a group of people who realize that they are great sinners in need of a great Savior, and that's why we make much of Jesus. This letter of Paul's was written to a church filled with human train wrecks, and it tells of how the gospel powerfully brings the beauty of redemption into the midst of the mess. For some reason, uh, when we look at these letters to the church in Corinth, we're we're inclined for some reason to look down our noses at at these people. Look at those boneheads. Why can't they seem to get their act together is how we approach 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And yet there's never been a church in human history that is not a complete mess. We deeply need Jesus. Every church is made up of sinners. And so we desperately need to hear just as much as the people of Corinth what God has to say through this particular book of the Bible. It's a timeless letter, and yet it's super timely for us today. So let me read these nine verses, and we'll pray, and we'll just jump in and get to work. So beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 1, says this, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as great sinners in need of a great Savior. Thank you for Jesus, our only hope for beauty in the midst of the sinful mess that we've created of our own lives. Will you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, convict us of sin and unbelief this morning? And will you help us to see and savor Jesus more as we dive into your word together? We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, Um, I grew up in the Bible Belt, like many of you, deep south Georgia, Albany, Georgia, for those of you who have any clue of what a map of the state of Georgia looks like. And uh, we in the Bible Belt have a great reputation for taking verses of the Bible out of context and slapping them on the side of coffee mugs or bumper stickers or really loud, busy t-shirts. Exhibit A, every youth group that you've ever encountered at a theme park along the way. And so the the last thing that I want to do is ignore context this morning when it comes to the Bible 
Every word is written in the context of a sentence, and every sentence is written in the context of a paragraph, and every paragraph is written in the context of a chapter, and so forth and so on. And so I want to begin this morning by providing us with a little bit of context. We're not going to be able to get to all of it, but the beauty of this book of the Bible is that as we press forward, we will be able to engage further backstory when it comes to the city of Corinth, the church in Corinth, Paul himself, and some of the people that he's addressing in this letter. But I do want to touch on a few things this morning contextually as we jump into a new book of the Bible. And so the first of those is the very author himself. Verse 1, we're told, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, many of you are familiar with the apostle Paul, right? This is, uh, this is a guy who's so famous that he doesn't need a last name. He's like Madonna or Beyonce, right? We just know him as Paul. And if you're in Christian circles, you know who we're talking about when we throw out the name Paul. But interestingly, he was not one of the the first original 12 apostles. That, uh, in fact, as the church was being built, um, as the original 12 were seeking to go forth with the gospel and establish the New Testament church, we know that Paul was on a mission to destroy the New Testament church. And so in those days, he was known as Saul. For those of you who may have a backstory, a history in the church, he was a devout Pharisee, the equivalent to today's good Bible belt, box-checking, cultural or nominal Christian. And like many of the devout Pharisees of his day, he didn't much care for people who loved and or followed Jesus. And so he ventured on a mission to persecute the church, even unto death. Um, If you read the account of Stephen who was the first New Testament Christian martyr in the Bible, you find Saul on the scene. And he's not just witnessing uh, Stephen's death. He's actually approving of it. So you find these verses in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was a violent hater of all things Christianity. If you think that you're beyond the reach of God's grace this morning, you're wrong. Just so you know, Saul was metaphorically and literally spitting on the bride of Christ the one that Jesus bled for and died. And God reached down by his grace and said, no more, you're mine. You're not beyond the reach of God's grace. No matter how far you've gone, no matter what kind of chapters you've written in your story thus far that lead you to this place this morning. For Saul, his conversion took place on on a road to Damascus. We find that in Acts chapter 9, where he has a direct encounter with the risen Jesus. He literally gets knocked off his horse by a blinding light of the radiance of the risen Son of God. Jesus says, no more, you're mine. And when Jesus says, no more, you're mine, guess what? You're his. He was given the name Paul and went on to become one of the uh, early church's first missionaries. In fact, he was a pioneersman for church planting. All of us church planters look back at Paul as the dude to to follow suit behind as a church planter. He planted churches all over the Mediterranean landscape and went on to author more New Testament books of the Bible than anyone else. Paul's story is a sure testimony that God's grace is greater than man's sin. 
Notice that, uh, according to verse 1, that Paul didn't will himself into the family of God or the role of apostle. You notice that it says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. That Paul didn't pull himself up by his own bootstraps in an effort and attempt to earn his way into the family of God. In fact, based on his own merits, Paul did everything necessary to assure that he would never become a part of the family of God. I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in the land of the devastating, uh, enslaving Protestant playbook. I grew up in a world that screamed, uh, there are good guys and there are bad guys. So God loves the good guys, and so you want to be one of the good guys, and that way you can be a part of Team Jesus. And, and that, that is an absolute lie, just so you know. If you've never heard the difference between religion and the gospel, let me just be very clear this morning that it's not that there are good guys and bad guys. There are bad guys and Jesus who showed up on the scene and rode in on his white horse to save all of the bad guys, including you and me from ourselves and our sin through his life, death, and resurrection. And so if you're here this morning and you bought into the lie that you can earn your way into the family of God, that Christianity is about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and checking all of the right do's and don'ts boxes, you're missing it. Let me, let me put a haunting question before you if that's you. How good is good enough? How do you know when you've done enough good to cause God to now look favorably upon you? I've used this analogy before uh, with our church back in Orlando. Uh, the idea would be similar to if God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to jump up off the ground, and I want you to touch the moon. And you got about four feet off the ground, but the person to your right or your left got two feet off the ground, and you looked at them and said, ha, I beat you. Only problem is when you look upward, you realize that you're light years away from the goal that God has set in place for all of us. And the same is true when it comes to God's holiness and our sin and the gap that exists between the two. There's no way to bridge that by way of our own efforts. Paul thought he was one of the good guys, and then he came face to face with the risen Jesus, and he realized that he was light years away. He realized that he couldn't will himself into God's good graces. Thanks be to God that he wills us for his own. Thanks be to God that he reaches down in his grace and breathes life into our dead, lifeless souls and says, no more, you're mine. And some of you have experienced that reality, and it is sweet. Paul, now a lover of Jesus and his bride, the church is writing. He has an audience in mind. According to verses 2 and 3, we're told uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth, that's who Paul's writing to, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul's writing to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth, the capital city of the Roman province of Achaia. And we'll get more into the background of this particular city as we dive into this letter in the weeks and, and months to come. But for now, suffice it to say that Paul planted this church on his second missionary journey. And so um, this church, Cross Point Peachtree City, is in a similar place as the people in Corinth, a church in its infancy stages. It was a very diverse church in a very cosmopolitan area, a very hip 
area, kind of an urban core sort of area, and, and they'd be- become spoiled under the leadership of Paul and Apollos and Peter, right? Imagine being a part of that church plant, and those are your church planting pastors. Peter and Paul, you just go to those dudes when you have questions, right? That would be really, really sweet. And yet, like any church, it doesn't take long to get off of the gospel path and leave the gospel in the rearview mirror for some tangent. And that's exactly what happened in Corinth, which is why Paul is writing this letter in the first place. These are just a few things that were going down in the church in Corinth. They loved Greek philosophy and rhetoric more than Jesus. They were treating church leaders like Christian rock stars. Anybody seen that one in the Bible Belt? They were unashamedly sleeping with their own family members. Insert state joke there. They were (laughs) suing one another over relational conflicts. They were soliciting prostitutes. They were getting drunk during communion. And they were questioning the validity of the resurrection. Are you kidding me? It's a wonder that Paul even uses the language of the church when he's talking to these guys, right? Many of us would write off a body of believers for far less than this. And don't get me wrong, Paul's about to shoot these guys straight. He's about to call a spade a spade. But before he does, he intentionally reminds them of the beauty of the gospel, making much of Jesus as the focal point before he goes anywhere. In fact, this passage is all about Jesus. If you, if you go and look at these first nine verses, you'll notice that the name of Jesus is used nine times in nine verses. Who do you think Paul wants to make sure we understand is the hero of all of this this morning? The one who once participated in the execution of Christ followers is now making much of Christ Jesus. Jesus is the focal point. To be very clear, and, and I'm still working to get to know you guys, and that's why we're going to have a lunch this morning. But, but I want you to know that you can rest assured that as long as I'm around, this church is going to be built on a foundation of Jesus Christ. He is the chief shepherd. I'm nothing more than an under-shepherd seeking to make much of him. That's what we want to be about as a church. We will make much of Jesus. He will always be the hero of everything that we do. Before Paul gets down to the nuts and bolts of everything, he says, Jesus. And oh yeah, Jesus. And, and let me make sure that you guys got it. Jesus. And he just does that for nine verses straight over and over and over again. Look at him. Isn't he glorious is what Paul is communicating. For some of us, the question this morning is very simple. It's have you taken your eyes off of Jesus? Have you allowed other things to become king in your life? Have you run off on a tangent, leaving the gospel behind in the rearview mirror? Some of us buy into this idea that the gospel is the entry ramp onto the highway of Christianity that we then leave behind for the the next systematic theology book or whatever it is. You never abandon Jesus as a Christian. You always need the person and work of Jesus as the focal point of your life. That the appropriate response, if you look at that question and you say, yeah, I think I actually have taken my eyes off of him, is not to now pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and attempt to modify your behavior. Rather, the appropriate response is to look at Jesus, right? And to keep looking at him until he becomes irresistibly glorious to you. Paul says, Church of Corinth, don't forget that you were sanctified, that you were set apart in Christ Jesus. He called you. He claimed you for his own. He bought you with his blood. Paul says, in the same way that I didn't do anything to get this gig, neither did you guys. The only thing that you brought to the table was your sin and the empty hands of faith. And that's everyone in this room this morning who claims to be a Christian. Jesus knocked every one of us off of our proverbial horses and blinded us with his radiance. And that's how we became a part of the family of God. 
And Paul says he's not just your savior, but he's your king. He's the one that you bend your knee to. The question, how do you know Jesus is your king? Because you gladly, in glad submission, bend your knee to him when it comes to the decisions that you make with your life. You're happier to be a peasant in his kingdom than to be the king of your own. Would be one way that you would answer that type of question. Paul's using some really defining language here, pointing the church to the one who died for her. And in doing so, he reminds them, interestingly, and I think we need to hear this too, any of us in the realm of church planting, that they're not the only game in town. You see that? He says, you, Christians in Corinth, are, verse 2, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's making very clear that this is so much bigger than them. This thing is so much bigger than me. It's so much bigger than all of us in this room. And yet we get to be a part of this great work of redemption that God's doing. We get to play a part in the story that he's authoring and actually entered into as a character, which is quite amazing. That's meant to humble us. Verse 3, Paul includes the standard greeting that you see in practically all of his letters, grace and peace, and he, he includes some Trinitarian language there. He talks about the Father and the Son, and soon enough we'll get into matters of the Holy Spirit in this letter. But verse 4 is where things get a little bit weird. Okay, um, If you look at verse 4, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Okay, When you read that, you're, you're meant to say, I'm sorry, what did you say, Paul? Do you not know what you're about to say to these people? He's addressing what most of us would consider to be one of the most jacked up churches in all of the New Testament era, right? This is the church that you check out once, but you put a phony name and number on your connect card and disappear into the abyss forever, right? This is the experience going on here. This is not the church that you get in your car and drive off and thank God for as you make your way to wherever you're going to lunch that day. Paul's getting ready to address some very, very serious matters with these guys. But before he gets there, he thanks God for the church in Corinth. That is really strange and absurd at first glance. Yet if you read on, you see the beauty of the gospel in the midst of the messiness. So for the remainder of our time, here's what I want to do. I just want to um, unpack a few truths, point out a few things that come out of verses 4 through 9 that are meant to do two things. One, they're meant to encourage us. But secondly, like parallel train tracks, they're meant to sober us. As well. So let me just jump into those things. Beginning in verse 4, number 1 is this, that grace is received, not earned. Verse 4 says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't say, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that you merited. That doesn't even make sense, right? Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor towards sinners, if God's favor was something to merit, it would have never been experienced in Corinth based on what we read throughout the course of the rest of this letter. One way we might say it is this. Corinth is the smelly kid in class. Corinth is the kid that can't throw. Corinth is the loner at the lunch table, spiritually. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus came for Corinth. Just read the gospels and you'll see it tattooed all over the pages, from tax collectors and adulterers to thieves and drunkards, Jesus came for Corinth. From pagans and prostitutes to liars and murderers, Jesus came for Corinth. Now that kind of statement will move the hearts of many. 
Here's the statement that will cause some to bristle, especially the religious neatniks in the room. You're Corinth, and so am I. You're the smelly kid in class, and so am I. You're the kid who can't throw, and so am I. You're the spiritual loner at the lunch table, and so am I. Aside from a few atheists out there who are trying to qualify, uh, or I should say, uh, who aren't trying to qualify for the kingdom of God, the rest of us are. Every world religion outside of Christianity says, earn it. And a lot of people inside the realm of Christianity culturally still say the same thing. Jesus says, you want to know what qualifies you for the kingdom of heaven? Realizing that you are absolutely and terribly unqualified for the kingdom of heaven. That's what qualifies you. Because when you become completely devoid of value and worth spiritually before the God who created you and who you need redemption from, you will turn to him in faith and bring nothing more than that in your sin to the table. Jesus the king holds the keys to the kingdom. It sounds completely upside down, right? If you walk through the Beatitudes study with us, you get it. It is upside down. It's gloriously upside down. It's supposed to be. That's the way God designed it. In a world driven by merit, Paul says, you don't earn grace, it's received. And that's actually good news for all the smelly kids in class like you and me. Number two, you're already gifted, but you're not yet glorified. Verse five, in every way, Paul says, you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. That There are some marks that you bear that confirm the receiving of the gospel in your life. If you're a Christian, you, you've been gifted by the Holy Spirit in ways that are intended to both edify uh, the church and point more people outside of the church to Jesus and his bride, the church. Consumerism is not remotely the cry of the Christ-exalting church. Contribution is the cry of the Christ-exalting church, which is why Mark 10.45 says this, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That we've been served by Jesus, the question becomes, how so? And the answer is through the spilling of his blood for us. And now, in light of that glorious reality, we bend our knee in glad submission to serve our King and his people. So let me ask you this, how has God gifted you? Have you ever sat with that question? How has God uniquely designed you and gifted you? How can you serve him? How can you serve his bride, the church? Well, for some, the, the practical application this morning is to, to get off the bench and to get into the game, which is super appropriate on Super Bowl Sunday, right? Great practical application, pastor, on Super Bowl Sunday. Notice that the people of Corinth, Paul says, were enriched in all speech and all knowledge, I find this very fascinating. Okay, by, by knowledge, Paul's talking about spiritual insight and objective understanding of truth, you might say. Paul says you've been enriched in knowledge, but, but check this out. In this letter to the saints in Corinth, he's going to ask them 11 different times, do you not know? You've been enriched in all knowledge. Do you not know? And oh, hey, what about this one? Do you not know? And what about this issue? Do you not know? Paul just does that over and over and over again. In other words, you have a gift of knowledge, and yet your knowledge is quite imperfect. You're still a work in progress, Paul says. Paul's saying you're misusing the gift in such a way that it's leading to division and arrogance rather than unity and love. And here's how that happens. That happens when you buy into the lie that you willed your own gifts into being. And we all get caught up into that lie from time to time, even us pastors, 
We all do if we're honest. The truth is that the only reason that you and I are gifted is because God willed that to be for his glory and for our joy. Just like he willed Paul for his own. Same thing with respect to speech. Paul says, um, you're, you're enriched in all knowledge and you're enriched in all speech as well. And interestingly, he's going to make very clear in this very same chapter of this letter that in this first century culture that was entrenched in Greek philosophy and rhetoric, the land of polished, persuasive speech, smooth talkers, Paul's going to say that eloquent, eloquent words can actually empty the cross of its very power. Beware of the way that you use the gifts that God has bestowed upon you. Because you're not yet the glorified version of yourself, it's possible to distort God's good gifts and to function as a hindrance rather than a help in pointing people to Jesus. One way that we might say it, and this is a a helpful way that you can write down in in a journal or in your notes, you're already gifted. Be encouraged by that. You're not yet glorified. Be sobered by that. Be humbled by that. Number three, God always supplies what he demands. Verse seven, so that you are not lacking in any gift, Paul says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone taking an economics class somewhere along the way? Um, remember that thing that they call the law of supply and demand if you manage to stay awake that day in class? The idea is that as demand goes up for a product or a service, supply goes down. Or as demand goes down, the supply goes up. It increases. That is not remotely the case with God, just so you know. God always supplies what he demands of his church. Always. If God is calling the church to a work, he will supply what he demands to meet her needs. Paul's saying, you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for Jesus to return and make everything sad untrue. That's meant to be an encouragement to the church this morning. I didn't bleed out and die for Jesus, just so you know. Jesus did that. Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church, and, and Jesus bled out and died for his church, and he didn't do so only to then abandon her and leave her helpless and hopeless. Jesus will build his church, and we're told, uh, according to Matthew's gospel, that the gates of hell can't do a thing about it, which is pretty sweet. And that's true on a personal level, too, right? Not just on a church level, but on a personal level. If God's calling you to something, you can be sure that he will supply what he demands to bring forth and make that calling clear. And if he doesn't supply it, maybe it's time to step back and reevaluate the calling. Because God has inexhaustible power at the end of the day and an infinite supply of resources at his fingertips. He's not handcuffed. He's absolutely able to come through and give you exactly what you need based on what he's calling you to. And then lastly, man, I love this one. Number four, God always finishes what he starts particularly in his people, in you, in me. Verse eight, Paul says, God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I, I grew up in the land of cultural Christianity. I was surrounded by it. And so here's how I thought it worked, and, and maybe you can relate to this. I thought that every sin that I committed was damning to my soul. And so here's how it worked for me. I thought that the Christian life was one of uh, praying a prayer to receive Jesus, going for as long as I possibly could without sinning, sinning because everyone does that, and then coming back and praying that prayer again and again 
And again, and so I prayed to receive Jesus, I think upwards of maybe 47 times or more uh, as an adolescent. I didn't even grow up in the church, and that's my story, right? So if you did grow up in the church, man, maybe you exponentially beat me on that list numerically. Why did I pray like that over and over and over again? Because it was about me. Because my eyes were fixed on me, my resume, rather than Christ's resume for me. One of my favorite hymns, man, I love this hymn. I go to it often. It's a hymn entitled Before the Throne of God Above. Maybe some of you are familiar with this hymn. The second verse of that hymn is unbelievably powerful, and it's a summary of verse 8. The second verse of that hymn goes like this. It says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look to see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the gospel, people. The worst thing that you can possibly do to assure yourself of your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is to look at you. That's the worst thing that you can do. Your resume is trash. So is mine. Jesus' resume is perfect. We're called to look to the cross, to look to Jesus. He bled out and died to make you his own treasured possession, as Peter writes in his letter. He's not going to drop the ball on finishing what he started. Be encouraged by that this morning, Christians in the room. Paul's so firm on this that he uses the legal term of guiltless. That's how sure you can be. You will be declared guiltless in the end. Not because you are, but because Jesus is for you. It's what Martin Luther referred to as the great exchange. Jesus gets my sin and gifts me his righteousness. It's the most terrible trade on Jesus' part ever, right? I, I used to be pretty witty, pretty sly in middle school. I was able to trade an apple for a pack of Gushers fruit snacks from time to time, and I thought I really got away with something. That's not remotely as unfair as this thing Luther refers to as the great exchange. Jesus takes my sin and gives me his perfect righteousness. It's the most gloriously unfair exchange in all of human history unbelievable, really. It's the gospel. It's why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Why? Because you're faithful? Because I'm faithful? No. Verse 9, because God is faithful. He called you into fellowship with his son. His reputation is on the line. He will finish what he started. You can be sure of that this morning, church, and be encouraged as you leave this place this morning knowing that. The church who's always looking inward is destined for either pride or despair. That's the only options that you have if you're looking at yourself. In contrast, the church who's always looking upward is destined to honor God in confident humility Confidence because Jesus has done everything necessary on our behalf and humility because Jesus has done everything necessary on our behalf. The church might be a mess, but she is a beautiful one at the end of the day. And we're gonna see as we unpack this letter exactly what God is up to. And we're gonna come back over and over again to Jesus as the hero of it all. And, and I believe that God's going to do great things through this church as we look at this beautiful mess in Corinth and realize that we're not very far from those guys at the end of the day. 
that Jesus is the hero of that church. He's the hero of this church. He's the hero of the church universal, and we celebrate him. He is the risen king. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.